My beloved brethren and sisters, for some years now I have been deeply concerned that we are not using the Book of Mormon as God intends. As I participated in the Mexico City Temple dedication, I received the distinct impression that God is not pleased with our neglect of the Book of Mormon. In the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord decreed that the whole Church was under condemnation, even all the children of Zion, because of the way they treated the Book of Mormon. And they shall remain under this condemnation until they present, said the Lord, and remember the New Covenant, even the Book of Mormon. Zion cannot fully arise and put on her beautiful garments if she is under this condemnation. This prompts five critical questions to which each of us must respond. Is the Book of Mormon the Word of God? For whom was it meant? How important is it that this volume be considered scripture? What is its major purpose? How are we to use it? First, in the Book of Mormon, the Word of God, the answer is yes, it is the Word of God. God has so testified, so have its writers, so has its translator, so have its witnesses, and so do all those who have read it and received a personal revelation from God as to its truthfulness. Second, for whom was the Book of Mormon meant? Moroni, the book's last writer, speaking to us, said, Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present, and yet you are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. God inspired Mormon, its chief compiler, to put into the book what we would need in our day. Third, how important is the Book of Mormon? Joseph Smith called it the keystone of our religion. Take away the Book of Mormon and the Revelation, he said, and where is our religion? We have none. This generation, said the Lord to Joseph Smith, the translator, shall have my word through you. And so it was. And those who receive the Book of Mormon in faith, the Lord states, and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. 
But those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it, it shall turn to their own condemnation. Fourth, what is the major purpose of the Book of Mormon? To bring men to Christ, to be reconciled to Him, and then to join His Church in that order. The title page of the Book of Mormon states, The book is for the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. The Lord further instructed that the Book of Mormon proves that God does inspire man and call him to his holy work in this age and generation as in generations of old. The Book of Mormon being true, then God did inspire his prophet Joseph Smith to translate it and did call him to do the holy work of restoring his church, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Finally, how are we to use the book? We must first read it and gain a testimony of its truthfulness. Men may deceive each other, but God does not deceive men. Therefore, the Book of Mormon sets forth the best test for determining its truthfulness, namely, read it and then ask God if it is true. Moroni, in in the book's final chapter, issued this divine challenge to every reader in these words. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost." Unquote. This, then, is the supreme assurance for the honest in heart to know by personal revelation from God that the Book of Mormon is true. Millions have put it to the test, and no, and increasing millions will yet know. Now the spirit as well as the body is in need of constant nourishment. Yesterday's meal is not enough to sustain today's needs. So also an infrequent reading of the most correct book of any book on earth, said the prophet Joseph Smith, is not enough. Not all truths are of equal value nor are all scriptures of the same worth. 
What better way to nourish the spirit than to frequently feast from the book which the prophet Joseph said would get a man near to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. President Marion G. Romney understood this. Years ago, he stated a daily procedure which he recommended to us for the reading of the Book of Mormon. Each morning, for 30 minutes. I know that it kept me in harmony, he said, so far as I did keep in harmony with the Spirit of the Lord. Then he added, it will hold us as close to the Spirit of the Lord as anything I know. The Book of Mormon is to be a standard unto my people which are of the house of Israel, said the Lord. It is a standard we should heed and follow. In the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord devotes several verses to summarizing the vital truths which the Book of Mormon teaches. It speaks of God, the creation of man, the fall, the atonement, the ascension of Christ into heaven, prophets, faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, endurance, prayer, justification, and sanctification through grace and loving and serving God. We must know these essential truths. Aaron and Ammon and his brethren in the Book of Mormon taught these same kind of truths to the Lamanite people who were in the darkest abyss. After accepting these eternal truths, the Book of Mormon states that those converted Lamanites never did fall away. If our children and grandchildren are taught and heed these same truths, will they fall away? The best instruct them in the Book of Mormon, at our dining table, by our firesides, at their bedsides, and in our letters and phone calls, in all of our goings and comings. Some spiritual, spiritually alert parents hold early morning devotionals with their families in their homes. They have a hymn, prayer, and then read and discuss the Book of Mormon. The elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel which are in the Book of Mormon, says the Lord in the 42nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Book of Mormon is for both member and non-member. 
combined with the Spirit of the Lord, the Book of Mormon is the greatest single tool which God has given us to convert the world. If we are to have the harvest of souls that President Kimball envisions, then we must use the instrument which God has designed for that task, the Book of Mormon. Elder Bruce R. McConkie stated, Men can get near to the Lord, can have more of the spirit of conversion and conformity in their hearts, can have stronger testimonies, and can gain a better understanding of the doctrines of salvation through the Book of Mormon than they can through the Bible. There will be more people saved in the kingdom of God, 10,000 times more, because of the Book of Mormon than there will be because of the Bible. The Christian world has the Bible, and so do we. The Bible speaks of a people, the Jews, their land, the Holy Land, their prophets, and the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ. But was there only one tribe of Israel? What of Joseph, the birthright son, who saved all of Israel's family from famine? What of Joseph, whose sons Israel blessed and said, Let my name be named on them and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac. What of Joseph, whom Israel blessed and promised that he would be a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall? Where is the record of Joseph? We testify to the world that we have the record of Joseph, even the Book of Mormon. Like Judah, Joseph had a people, the Nephites and Lamanites. Like Judah, Joseph had a land, the Americas. Like Judah, Joseph had prophets. And his descendants also had a visitation from Jesus Christ, even the resurrected Lord. Know ye not, the Lord says in the Book of Mormon, that there are more nations than one? Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another. And because that I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another. We invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible sits on the pulpit of hundreds of different religious sects. The Book of Mormon, the record of Joseph, verifies and clarifies the Bible. It proves, removes stumbling blocks. It restores many plain and precious things. We testify that when used together, the Bible and the Book of Mormon confound false doctrines, lay down contentions, and establish peace. We do not have to prove the Book of Mormon. We do not have to prove that it is true. The book is its own proof. All we need to do is read it and declare it. The Book of Mormon is not on trial. The people of the world, including the members of the Church, are on trial as to what they will do with this second witness for Christ. I testify that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, and therefore Jesus is the Christ. Joseph Smith is a prophet. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true, and its authorized servants to perform the ordinances of salvation today are here. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I pray that my message might be received in the spirit of the address of Elder Oaks. Recently, the First Presidency and the Twelve assigned me to work with the missionary department. Missionary work is a great challenge, especially when we realize that approximately 4.7 billion people live on the earth today. The earth's present population gain is 150 persons per minute, 9,100 per hour. 218,100 per day, and 79.6 million per year. If you are 50 years old, the world's population has more than doubled in your lifetime. At the present time, more people are born in one day than are baptized into the Church in one year. The magnitude of our missionary task can appear to be overwhelming. Yet the assignment to the members of the Church is very clear. We are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every human soul. Jesus taught, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. With faith we shall do as the Lord directed. For the Prophet Joseph Smith declared, The truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent.
till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. An indication of the faith we need to meet this challenge was expressed by Elder Boyd K. Packer, who said, Since baptism is essential, there must be an urgent concern to carry the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We accept the responsibility to preach the gospel to every person on earth. And if the question is asked, you mean you are out to convert the entire world? The answer is yes. We will try to reach every living soul. Some who measure the challenge quickly say, why, that's impossible. It cannot be done. To that we simply say, perhaps, but we shall do it anyway." Unquote. Part of the answer may lie in our ability to more fully understand and accelerate the use of modern communication technology to teach the world the gospel to the world. We must use their greatest potential in the newspapers, magazines, television, radio, and satellites. But even with all of the technology working for us, there is no power in the Church to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ that can equal what you and I as individuals can do. I am aware that most members of the Church understand that they should take an active part in proclaiming the gospel. Some have been quite successful, but others have not yet tried. I believe that far too many members of the Church do not understand the underlying doctrine that governs our Heavenly Father's work. Joseph Smith taught, Baptism is a sign to God, to angels, and to the heavens that we do the will of God, and there is no other way beneath the heavens whereby God hath ordained for man to come unto him to be saved and enter into the kingdom of God except faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, and baptism for the remission of sins. Then you have the promise of the gift of the Holy Ghost." Unquote. When they are baptized, men and women receive remission of their sins and become numbered among the saints to receive the blessings and happiness that membership in the Church can give. A natural consequence of conversion is the continued remission of sin by living the gospel, which includes sharing the gospel with others. President Spencer W. Kimball declared, The Lord has told us that our sins will be forgiven more readily if, as we bring souls unto Christ and remain steadfast in bearing testimony to the world. And surely every one of us is looking for additional help in being forgiven of our sins." Unquote. The Doctrine and Covenants we read, For I will forgive you of your sins with this commandment, that you remain steadfast in your minds in solemnity and the spirit of prayer in bearing testimony to all the world of those things which are communicated unto you. And also in the Doctrine and Covenants, nevertheless, 
ye are blessed. For the testimony which ye have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon. And they rejoice over you, and your sins are forgiven you. A former prophet of God, President George Albert Smith, said, My understanding is that the most important mission I have in this life is, first, to keep the commandments of God as they have been taught to me, and next, to teach them to my father's children who do not understand them. The doctrine seems quite clear to me. The remission of sins is an ongoing process. As each one of us strives to become clean, pure, and even sanctified, I see no better way for us to do this than to help others of our Heavenly Father's children find the truth. When we partake of the sacrament, we covenant that we are willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ and that we will always remember Him and keep His commandments. Is there any better way that you and I can demonstrate to the Lord our love for Him than to share His gospel? We need not be sent to far-flung cities or set our feet on distant lands to be missionaries. Our next-door neighbors, friends, acquaintances, family members, relatives, and the stranger down the street are all part of the world with whom we should be sharing the gospel message. No member of the Church needs to wait for the ward, stake, mission, or any Church organization to lead them in doing this work. Each one of us should be actively involved in sharing the gospel because we love the Lord with all of our hearts and because we desire to serve Him. The scriptures teach, Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore He suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto Him. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Wherefore you are called to cry repentance unto this people. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. Just think of it, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ suffered the pain of all men that you and I might have the promise of eternal life. Surely He can expect us to do His work that He has entrusted to us. Our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son have not left us alone in this great work. They have promised to guide us if we will but ask them for help. May I suggest a simple way in which each one of us can exercise our faith and start our personal missionary service. Write down a date in the near future on which you will have someone ready to be taught the gospel. Do not worry that you do not have someone already in mind. Let the Lord help you as you pray diligently for guidance. Fast and pray, seeking guidance and direction from our Heavenly Father. Many, if not all of you, will have special spiritual experiences as the Lord inspires you. I know from my own personal and family missionary experience that the Lord will enlighten your mind. 
He will sharpen your vision of this work by bringing names of non-members to your mind that you have never before regarded as potential members of the Church. As you continue, you will be blessed to know what you should say and how you should approach each person. Brothers and sisters, you will notice that I did not suggest that you write down a name, but rather that you write down a specific date. The key to our success will be to ask for divine guidance that we might be directed to those who will accept the gospel. Because living the gospel is essential to the remission of sins, and because giving missionary service is essential to living the gospel, I believe each one of us must set a definite date, at least once each year, to have an individual or a family ready to be taught the gospel. We should expect to have wonderful success. We in the missionary department would like to hear of your success as you follow this counsel. No joy equals that of bringing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the life of one of Heavenly Father's children. Missionary experiences can bring to every member of the Church the calm reassurance that his sins are in very deed being forgiven. Our Heavenly Father will love us for proclaiming the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ, to all of His children on the earth. Please do not wait for anyone but the Lord to help you. He will help you. Our individual efforts can produce a great increase in building the kingdom of God. If just 30 percent of the active adult members of the Church will follow this simple procedure at least once each year, we would add 200,000 additional converts to those we are already baptizing. Compounded, this would mean in 10 years an increase of at least 5.4 million more converts than what we would have had under our present level of member effort. If 100 percent of the active adults would participate, we would soon start to see that every living soul can receive the message. May God bless all of us that we will have the courage to commit ourselves to a specific date for having someone ready to hear the gospel message. Then may we proceed to call upon the Lord to guide our efforts so that thousands of our Heavenly Father's children will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we all look upon this not as a duty, but rather as a great privilege. This I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, because it was not appropriate for me to commence my Church service until I had concluded my judicial duties in state government, I did not speak at the April conference where I was sustained. Consequently, this semiannual conference is my first opportunity to speak to the general membership of the Church to express acceptance of my calling to the Council of the Twelve. I am thrilled with this calling. Having been called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those in authority, I have gladly forsaken my professional activities to spend the rest of my days 
in the service of the Lord. I will devote my whole heart, might, mind, and strength to the great trust placed in me, especially to the responsibilities of a special witness of the name of Jesus Christ in all the world. Many men and women were called to Church service last April. Eight men were called as general authorities. Six women were called to the presidencies of the Relief Society and young women. Over 200 men were called to serve as bishops, and over 1,700 men and women were called as full-time missionaries. In that same month, tens of thousands of others were called as officers and teachers and other workers in the many Church organizations throughout the world. Those called in April joined millions of others already serving in similar capacities in the restored Church. As I contemplated my own calling and the callings of millions of others already in service, I was led to consider this question, Why do we serve? Service is an imperative for those who worship Jesus Christ. To followers who were vying for prominent positions in His kingdom, the Savior taught, Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. On a later occasion, He spoke of ministering to the needs of the hungry, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. He concluded that teaching with these words, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. In Latter-day Revelation, the Lord has commanded that we succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. In another section of the Doctrine and Covenants, He instructed us to be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of our own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. Holders of the Melchizedek priesthood receive it upon a covenant to use its powers in the service of others. Indeed, service is a covenant obligation of all members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Whether our service is to our fellow man or to God, it is the same. If we love Him, we should keep His commandments and feed His sheep. When we think of service, we usually think of the acts of our hands. But the scriptures teach that the Lord looks to our thoughts as well as to our acts. One of the earliest commandments to Israel was that they should love Him and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When the prophet Samuel was sent to choose and anoint one of the sons of Jesse as a new king for Israel, the Lord told him to reject the first son, though he was a man of fine appearance. The Lord explained, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. We are familiar with the proverb which states that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We also read in Proverbs, 
All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Latter-day Revelation declares that the Lord requires not only the acts of the children of man, but the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. Numerous scriptures teach that our Heavenly Father knows our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. The prophet Moroni taught that if our works are to be credited for good, they must be done for the right reasons. If a man offereth a gift or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. For behold, it is not counted unto him for righteousness. Similarly, the prophet Alma taught that if we have hardened our hearts against the word of God, we will not dare to look upon our God at the final judgment, because all our works will condemn us, and our thoughts will also condemn us. These scriptures make clear that in order to purify our service in the Church and to our fellow men, It is necessary to consider not only how we serve, but also why we serve. People serve one another for different reasons, and some reasons are better than others. Perhaps none of us serves in every capacity all the time for only a single reason. Since we are imperfect beings, most of us probably serve for a combination of reasons, and the combinations may be different from time to time as we grow spiritually. But we should all strive to serve for the reasons that are highest and best. What are some of the reasons for service? By way of illustration, and without pretending to be exhaustive, I will suggest six reasons. I will discuss these in ascending order from the lesser to the greater reasons for service. Some may serve for hope of earthly reward. Such a man or woman might serve in a Church position or in private acts of mercy in an effort to achieve prominence or cultivate contacts that would increase income or aid in acquiring wealth. Others might serve in order to obtain worldly honors, prominence, or power. The scriptures have a word for gospel service for the sake of riches and honor. It is priestcraft. Nephi said, Priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. In these latter days we are commanded to seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Unfortunately, not all who accomplish works under that heading are really intending to build up Zion or strengthen the faith of the people of God. Other motives can be at work. Service that is ostensibly unselfish but is really for the sake of riches or honor surely comes within the Savior's condemnation of those who outwardly appear righteous unto man, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Such service earns no gospel reward. I would that ye should do alms unto the poor, the Savior declared, 
But take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. The Savior continued, Therefore, when ye shall do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as will hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In contrast, those who serve quietly, even in secret, qualify for the Savior's promise that thy Father, who seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Another reason for service, probably more worthy than the first, but still in the category of service in search of earthly reward, is that motivated by a personal desire to obtain good companionship. We surely have good associations in our Church service, but is that why we serve? I once knew a person who was active in Church service until a socially prominent friend and fellow worker moved away. When the friend moved from the ward, this person ceased to serve. In this case, a Church worker was only willing to serve when the fellow workers were acceptable. Persons who serve only to obtain good companionship are more selective in choosing their friends than the Master was in choosing his servants or associates. Jesus called most of his servants from those in humble circumstances, and he associated with sinners. He answered critics of such association by saying, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which speaks of people in the last days, gives a description that seems to include those who serve for hope of earthly reward of one sort or another. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol. These first two reasons for service are selfish and self-centered and unworthy of saints. As the Apostle Paul said, we that are strong enough to bear the infirmities of the weak should not do so to please ourselves. Reasons aimed at earthly rewards are distinctly lesser in character and reward than the other reasons I will discuss. Some may serve out of fear of punishment. The scriptures abound with descriptions of the miserable state of those who fail to follow the commandments of God. Thus King Benjamin taught his people that the soul of the unrepentant transgressor would be filled with a lively sense of his own guilt, which doth cause him to shrink from the presence of the Lord, and doth fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. Such descriptions surely offer sufficient incentive for keeping the commandment of service. But service out of fear of punishment is a lesser motive at best. Other persons may serve out of a sense of duty or out of loyalty to friends or family or traditions. These are what I would call the good soldiers who instinctively do what they are asked without question 
and sometimes without giving much thought to the reasons for their service. Such persons fill the ranks of voluntary organizations everywhere, and they do much good. We have all benefited by the good works of such persons. Those who serve out of a sense of duty or loyalty to various wholesome causes are the good and honorable men and women of the earth. Service of the character I have just described is worthy of praise and will surely qualify for blessings, especially if it is done willingly and joyfully. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. It is obeying God willingly that is accepted, an anonymous writer has said. The Lord hates that which is forced. It is rather a tax than an offering. Although those who serve out of fear of punishment or out of sense of duty undoubtedly qualify for the blessings of heaven, there are still higher reasons for service. One such higher reason for service is the hope of an eternal reward. This hope, the expectation of enjoying the fruits of our labors, is one of the most powerful sources of motivation. As a reason for service, it necessarily involves faith in God and in the fulfillment of His prophecies. The scriptures are rich in promises of eternal rewards. For example, in a revelation given through the prophet Joseph Smith in June 1829, the Lord said, If you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life. Which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God? The last motive I will discuss is, in my opinion, the highest reason of all. In its relationship to service, it is what the scriptures call a more excellent way. Charity is the pure love of Christ. The Book of Mormon teaches us that this virtue is the greatest of all. The Apostle Paul affirmed and illustrated that truth in his great teaching about the reasons for service. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. We know from these inspired words that even the most extreme acts of service, such as giving all of our goods to feed the poor, profit us nothing unless our service is motivated by the pure love of Christ. If our service is to be most efficacious, it must be accomplished for the love of God and the love of His children. The Savior applied that principle in the Sermon on the Mount, where He commanded us to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, and pray for them that despitefully use us and persecute us. He explained the purpose of that commandment as follows. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? 
And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? This principle, that our service should be for the love of God and the love of fellow man rather than for personal advantage or any other lesser motive, is admittedly a high standard. The Savior must have seen it so since he joined his commandment for selfless and complete love directly with the ideal of perfection. The very next verse of the Sermon on the Mount contains this great commandment, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This principle of service is reaffirmed in the fourth section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Therefore, O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. We learn from this command that it is not enough to serve God with all of our might and strength. He who looks into our hearts and knows our minds demands more than this. In order to stand blameless before God at the last day, we must also serve him with all of our heart and mind. Service with all of our heart and mind is a high challenge for all of us. Such service must be free of selfish ambition. It must be motivated only by the pure love of Christ. If we have difficulty with the command that we serve for love, a Book of Mormon teaching can help us. After describing the importance of charity, the prophet Moroni counseled, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ. The service of persons filled with that love will meet the high test expressed in the 24th Psalm. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. I know that God expects us to work to purify our hearts and our thoughts so that we may serve one another for the highest and best reason, the pure love of Christ. Most of all, I know that God lives, and I know that his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, died for our sins and is our Savior. And I know that God has restored the fullness of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith in these latter days. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <clears throat> My brothers and sisters, the Church is at one of those hinge points in its history, the ending of one era and the beginning of another, each with its blessings and its challenges. If prepared, we shall neither fear nor fail in our particular time. Among other things, the past obscurity of the Church is giving way to visibility. Obscurity denotes generally unknown and withdrawn from the centers of activity. Hence, the obscure is often misunderstood. The Lord described how he will bring his latter-day work forth out of obscurity and darkness. Thus, as foreseen, Christ and his work are becoming a light which can no longer be hidden. This emerging reality brings with it its own set of challenges and opportunities. For instance, though the gospel light is small, the adversary knows what it signifies. 
hence his disproportionate efforts to dim it. Furthermore, God has chosen to work through those whom the world regards as weak and foolish. With heightened visibility, this fact, too, then creates its own set of challenges. Nevertheless, God hath chosen the foolish to confound the wise, the weak to confound the mighty. Disciples need not be embarrassed by considerations of scale any more than by the infrequency of prestigious converts, since, as Paul said, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But there is still more to be allowed for. As if comparative obscurity, smallnesses to scale, and ample human imperfection in the membership of His Church were not enough, the Lord wants a humble as well as a pure people. Thus, the lesson taught ancient Israel is still relevant. Only 300 warriors were used by Gideon to triumph over Israel's enemies, lest Israel vaunt themselves. The Lord chastens us so that we will remember Him, trying our patience and our faith until we too learn that none could deliver them but the Lord their God. As to scale, what occurred in the gardens of Eden and Gethsemane is of enormous significance to all mankind, but it was inversely proportioned to the tiny plots of earth on which those eternity-shaping dramas were played out. Truth, as Mount Sinai showed, transcends the importance of the terrain on which it is given. The Holy Land was a comparatively small strip of sand, about 200 by 75 miles. Even so, therein occurred the central drama of all human history. Yet consider, the wondrous four Gospels tell us vital salvational truths, but not what the Persians, Chinese, and Indians were about during Jesus' mortal ministry. Yet these and all other peoples will be indelibly and irrevocably blessed by Jesus and His Atonement. They, no less than we, are children of an almighty God and are fully included in His redemptive plans. However, unlike our time, ancient nations and cultures were often unaware of each other. Furthermore, secular history is usually silent concerning spiritual things. The Chinese in the Qin dynasty were busy with stones and the Great Wall of China. They could scarcely be expected to know about Daniel's stone cut out of the mountain without hands. About when Lehi and his pioneering party landed in the Americas, Solon, the Greek reformer, was striving to end economic distress caused partly by an 18 percent interest rate. As Pompey conquered Jerusalem, 2,000 stripling warriors were fighting for Nephite liberty. Approximately when Jacob was tediously engraving on the plates, a physician in India reportedly performed cataract surgery. About when Amaron hid the sacred records, witnessing of God's introducing his resurrected son, Jesus Christ, to the Nephites, Constantine convened a council to discuss whether or not God and Christ were of the same substance. As lonely Mormon, whose only music was in his soul, moved toward culminating Cumorah, Bishop Ambrose of Milan instituted hymn singing in church. Japan began its recorded history about when Nephite history was winding down, and likewise the Roman presence in Britain. A few examples of secular silence about spiritual things will suffice. Precisely which pharaoh was in power during the time of the great and tumultuous events associated with Moses in the Exodus? 
There is little in the secular record to affirm those events which Christians and Jews alike regard as being of major significance. There appears to be precious little secular history which records the drama associated with the arraignment, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. For Pilate, just more trouble, but temporary political gain. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Besides, important as Pilate was, locally and briefly, he was not Caesar. And why no secular confirmation by historians such as Tacitus concerning Paul's part in the drama of the Christians Rome and Nero? Mostly, brothers and sisters, these great spiritual events went unseen by eyes spiritually untrained. Therefore, they were lost in the swollen sea of worldly cares, a sea which never rests. One day, the historical record will be complete. But meanwhile, the scriptures will be our guide concerning those transcending spiritual events in human history which are saturated with significance. In any event, world leaders are busy with the world's business. In 1910-11, a young Home Secretary defended, on the floor of Parliament, the right of LDS missionaries to proselyte. Amid pressures, Winston Churchill held fast for religious tolerance. Major biographies on Churchill are silent on those episodes, the outcome of which was vital to us, but not the stuff of secular history. The same general disregard attends those whom God chooses as his leaders. Moreover, their imperfections are duly noted. Moses was described as the most meek man upon the face of the earth. Yet Moses had a brief moment when he rashly declared, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. Even so, the Lord readied remarkable Moses for later service, including atop the Mount of Transfiguration. After Paul wrote his touching epistle on love to the saints at Corinth, he wrote to Galatian members, using some stinging and sarcastic language. Furthermore, companion Barnabas apparently heard Paul's tongue when it was not the tongue of an angel. Paul even noted his tendency to boast, reminding us of the wisdom of yet another prophet who wrote, I do not boast in my own strength, nor in my own wisdom, but I will boast of my God. Only Jesus was perfect in all things, including love and meekness. Even the greatest of mortal prophets fall short of Christ's high and perfect standards. Thus, as members of the Church, if we can see the life of discipleship, whether for ourselves or for the prophets, as a combination of Proving, reproving, and improving, we will be much better off. Throughout scriptural history, we see recurring efforts to demean prophets in order to dismiss them, to label them in order to diminish them. Mostly, however, they are simply ignored by their contemporaries and by secular history. After all, early Christians were merely called the sect of the Nazarenes. Like his predecessors, Joseph Smith reflected some of the anxieties and activities of his time and period. Yet a torrent of truth came through that good but imperfect conduit. More than Joseph could communicate, as he once declared, It is my meditation all the day, and more than my meat and drink, 
to know how I shall make the saints of God to comprehend the visions that roll before my mind like the surf. Some followers became disaffected, but later returned, including once statusful men like Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and Thomas B. Marsh. Yet these men voted with their feet to rejoin and reconcile with the kingdom. The true doctrines drew them back, however, and the only status sought or conferred was membership once again in the Lord's Church. In all this, there is great cause for hope and even gratitude. Moroni prescribed, Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than ye have been. And Lorenzo Snow practiced. I can fellowship the president of the Church, he said, if he does not know everything I know. I saw the imperfections in Joseph Smith. I thank God that he would put upon a man who had those imperfections the power and authority he placed upon him. For I knew that I myself had weakness, and I thought there was a chance for me. I thank God that I saw these imperfections. From Elder B. H. Roberts, who loved the prophet dearly, there were these words. Joseph Smith claimed for himself no special sanctity, no faultless life, no perfection of character, no inerrancy for every word spoken by him. And as he did not claim these things for himself, so can they not be claimed for him by others. Yet to Joseph Smith was given, said Brother Roberts, access to the mind of deity through the revelations of God to him. In fact, brothers and sisters, the Prophet Joseph Smith, just a few weeks before his martyrdom, confirmingly said, I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught. Must I then be thrown aside as a thing of naught? Should we be surprised that prophets and people alike experience this next reality? For he will give unto the faithful line upon line, precept upon precept, and I will try you and prove you herewith. Herewith means in this manner or in this way. The same gradual unfolding will pertain to the history of God's work. Meanwhile, Winston Churchill's imagery about history is helpful for us to remember. History, with its flickering lamp, stumbles along the trail of the past, trying to reconstruct its scenes, to revive its echoes, and kindle with pale gleams the passion of former days. Since living in the present, however, disciples should heed those imperial scriptures which spread themselves over all occasions. In one of these we read of stern divine purpose. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their faith and their patience. Why those two particular trials? Also, why not give us a lengthier Book of Mormon? Behold, I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi. But the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. Again, we must wait for our full answer. So the process of proving, reproving, and improving unfolds. It should neither offend us nor surprise us. Meanwhile, unevenness in the spiritual development of people means untidiness in the history of people, and we should not make an individual an offender for a word. 
as if a single communication could set aside all else an individual may have communicated or stood for. Some lie in wait in our day as during the ministry of Jesus, seeking to provoke him to speak of many things, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. The Pharisees actually took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. The finished mosaic of the history of the Resurrection will be larger and more varied as more pieces of tile emerge, adjusting a sequence here or enlarging there a sector of our understanding. The fundamental outline is in place now, however, but history deals with imperfect people in process of time, whose imperfections produce refractions as the pure light of the gospel plays upon them. There may even be a few pieces of tile which for the moment do not seem to fit. We can wait, as we must, to learn later whether, for instance, <clears throat> Matthew or Luke's account <clears throat> of Jesus' Davidic descent is correct. Meanwhile, the Father has, on several occasions, given us Jesus' crucial genealogy. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Granted, there is not full correlation between the four Gospels about the events and participants of the empty garden tomb. Yet the important thing is that the tomb was empty because Jesus had been resurrected. Essence, not tactical detail. Moreover, the faithful then and now understand why the resurrected Jesus did not appear to the Sanhedrin, to Caiaphas, or Pilate, but instead to bands of believers at Bethany and Bountiful. Why, for instance, did not ancient Church leaders more carefully record the fulfillment of certain prophecies of Samuel the Lamanite? Belatedly, at Jesus' direction, it was written fully and precisely. So, belatedly, the fullness of the history of the dispensation of the fullness of times will be written. The final mosaic of the Restoration will be resplendent, reflecting divine design and the same centerpiece, the Father's plan of salvation and exaltation and the Atonement of His Son, Jesus Christ. And at the perfect day, we will see that we have been a part of things too wonderful for us. Part of the marvel and the wonder of God's marvelous work and a wonder will be how perfect divinity mercifully used us imperfect humanity. May we understand that this is the Lord's work. It will roll on until all His purposes are filled, of which I gladly testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.